Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about electronic cigarettes and how vaping among youth paves the way to cigarette smoking. So behaviorally, it's people are getting nicotine, which is a stimulant, and they're getting used to that. Then we'll discuss the most current advice for hemorrhoids, a condition that affects about three-quarters of adults. With an American diet, we don't get enough fiber. We just eat too much processed food, and so if we get more fiber in our diet, our stools will be softer and easier to pass, and we don't have to spend as much time sitting on the commode. So those are the, the primary things that we recommend for people to deal with. And we'll hear about some new therapies coming to the stem cell transplant unit. Those uh, um, T-cells circle on it along the patient's body and then recognize those tumor cells and leukemia cells, and then they kill those cells. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about what to do about hemorrhoids, and we'll learn about some new therapies coming to the stem cell transplant unit. But first, we'll hear how more young people are using electronic cigarettes and how vaping can lead to cigarette smoking. A new report on the health effects of electronic cigarettes says that while e-cigarettes may be less harmful than conventional cigarettes, they're not harmless, and their use among, among youth increases the risk of transitioning to smoking traditional cigarettes. Here to discuss this trend are two people from the Upstate New York Poison Center, Administrative Director Michelle Kaliva and Public Education Coordinator Lee Livermore. Welcome to you both. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. So this new report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, um, which was sponsored by the Food and Drug Administration, says that to take a comprehensive look at evidence on the human health effects of e-cigarettes. So what were the findings that were most relevant, Lee? Well, they looked at uh, all of the published articles that they could find, and they did their analysis from there. So they identified what were some of the significant trends uh, that you had mentioned, that uh, e-cigarette devices are gaining in popularity, uh, especially with youth, uh, so middle school, high school teenagers. And uh, that equals to roughly about 20% um, on the average of teenagers in high school have stated that they've either tried or use uh, an electronic device. Wow. Okay. Um, and then what about in terms of, are there adults using these too? Yes, there's uh, adults using them. Uh, what was really interesting is that the electronic device was developed in 2007 by a pharmacist in Beijing, China. And around 2010, roughly, was when first data started to be uh, collected on these devices. And originally, it was uh, promoted as a substitute for combustible tobacco products. So it was sold as a safer alternative uh, for someone who was looking to quit traditional tobacco products. Oh, so it meant to be sort of a bridge to being able to get off cigarettes. Well, that was the initial promotion uh, on them. It's sort of the opposite now? 
If we look at the development, uh, once the product has hit the market, there's been so many different uh, versions of the devices that have been created. And, and so to help add some clarity that uh, scientifically they refer to them as ENDS, E-N-D-S, which is an electronic nicotine delivery system. And uh, most people know them as e-cigs, uh, hookahs, or vaping devices. So do they look like cigarettes? Are they little wands or what, what do they look like? In the beginning they did. They actually mirrored the style of a cigarette and they had a non-refillable uh, cartridge that contained your nicotine, your e-juice in there along with a battery, a heating device that you would heat up the, to create a vapor, a mist that people would uh, breathe in. So obviously you don't light them with a match. Since they're battery operated, you just turn them on when you're ready to use them? Or? Yeah, some of them are very uh, interesting because you would have to hold a button to ignite the or charge the battery, whereas now some of them actually will activate the moment you draw on the device. And since the very original, the simple style of the devices, they have um, grown in styles and shapes so that they uh, even look like cigars or some of the newer versions today um, are looking like flash drive devices or even inhalers. The medical inhalers for like asthma or something. Exactly. So are they done to, to be clever like that or to just be incognito and hide them from authority or I think it's uh, to be deceptive okay. and and so if you're uh, using it to hide it because a lot of the laws are following traditional uh, rulings with vaping devices as they do with tobacco products so um, a trend that's popular with kids is to use these devices but uh, school districts are concerned that they're using them on campus or actually in the classrooms. So they're, they do follow the um, tobacco use laws in the state, though. Yes. They're supposed to anyway. Yes. So, um, Michelle, you were mentioning um, some of these devices, and the, the flavorings that go in can be a dangerous thing, right? Right. They're, they actually contain the nicotine, and, but they're also flavored with you know, blueberry or some pleasant scent. Um, that could be potentially eye-catching to children. So we worry about the small child that, that gets into it, picks it up, and, and drinks the liquid component of it. Nicotine is very toxic to, to children. It takes very little. It takes a taste of it, and they can actually, um, their heart rate can drop, their blood pressure can drop, they can go into cardiovascular collapse and, and die from it. And there have been cases where small children have... Um, drank the liquid and have died. So we're very concerned from that perspective. So in terms of the cartridges being left around or even the devices. Right, maybe. and they're not safety sealed. So it's, okay. you know, and again, eye-catching to a small child. Now what about um, drug use? Can these uh, elements or these devices be used for drugs instead of nicotine? And yeah, that's disconcerting too. So, um, you know, let's say, for example, it's okay to use um, these e-cigs in your home and, you you know, you don't mind that your teenager is is using the nicotine. Well, again, Lee's word deceptive. They can also be filled with other things, and they are. So we know that some of the synthetic products are being put into, and some of the 
even the opioid-like products can be put into these devices and inhaled. So again, you can have significant um, significant toxicity as well as you know being hooked on these various drugs. Oh, interesting. Any chemical that uh, can be converted into uh, an oil or a liquid using these devices um, can then pose a particular problem. Also, the devices are designed in some cases to actually burn plant-like materials. So marijuana can be ground up very, very finely and used in these devices. So the, um, the marketing on them are actually pretty admirable, um, that they're actually designing certain devices for certain products to be consumed. So whether it is a plant-like material or it's an oil or a liquid or even a more thicker uh, material, they're covering every base out there. Wow. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with two people from the Upstate New York Poison Center, Administrative Director Michelle Kaliva and Public Education Coordinator Lee Livermore. Um, so how can we compare the two habits of cigarette smoking and vaping? How, how do they compare? Are, are more people vaping than smoking, or do we know? I don't have the data on that yet. Um, if we look at, again, how the products are marketed that uh, to help somebody transition away from combustionable tobacco products, uh, the e-cigarettes or vaping devices are definitely marketed that way. Um, however, uh, with uh, tobacco products, you have over 7,000 different chemicals in it, as to which we know are carcinogenic. Um, in the vaping devices, there can be less number of chemicals. However, um, some people are um, fooled because the product will say contains no nicotine. And in the report that you cited, they actually had looked at some studies where they had tested the liquid that said no nicotine in it, and there was actually nicotine in it. So behaviorally, it's people are getting nicotine, which is a stimulant, and they're getting used to that. And then if you look at the normal behavior of smoking and the repeatability of it, vaping devices actually made it easier. I've seen people carry them on a lanyard around their neck and just pick it up and take a draw and then drop it. So the convenience and also the mindlessness of the behavior is prompting more of the habitual um, desire for the product. Because you don't have to uh, finish the whole cigarette. You can just... Now, how does it price compare? I mean, because cigarettes are pretty expensive, but... Sure. Um, it varies depending on which device that you want to use. So some people are of the mindset that it's cheaper. And so you could, like I say, get a self-contained unit. You can get units that have refillable cartridges or the great big ones that they call tanks. And so you have this very large supply of e-liquid, which allows someone to take longer and deeper breaths of it. So a traditional tobacco cigarette might have upwards of 30 milligrams of nicotine, whereas in these other devices, it might be lower of 21 milligrams of nicotine. However, if you're using it more frequently and also at higher and deeper rates, then you're actually getting a higher level of nicotine into your system. The addictive component of this can't be underestimated. So again, as Lee said, it may be marketed as being nicotine-free, but but there are there is nicotine in it, and even at that small small amount, 
the addictive properties are still there. So it, can we say whether one is safer than the other? I mean, it seems like there's risks for each. Absolutely. And that was one of the conclusions of the report uh, that uh, you had mentioned earlier in the show is that um, it may be less harmful. However, it by no means is harmless or safer because you're still consuming chemicals into the human body. What I like to promote in our education programs at the Poison Center is that every cell in the human body needs three things. It needs water, oxygen, and nutrition. And anytime you're substituting and displacing any one of those, it doesn't just go to a particular area. It goes to every part of the human body. So where some people are vaping, they're misunderstanding or misinformed, thinking it's just a mist, but it is a delivery of chemicals that are being heated up and converted and then spread throughout the entire body. And that doesn't sound very healthy, really. <laughs> now, but what about um, secondhand smoke? I mean, it's not smoke from the vaping device, really. It's mist or whatever. Sure. Uh, they're doing studies on that right now. Um, however, if you consider it in, in comparison with tobacco products, even though you're breathing it in and retaining some chemicals, um, it has been proven secondhand smoke with tobacco products is as harmful as the product itself. So it has the same impact. One of the disguising factors of this is, is the flavoring and the smells. And so somebody doesn't smell the same combustion that you have with a tobacco product, and so they're less aware of how really harmful the product is. Interesting. Well, um, I wanted to ask you about the issues that the Poison Center is hearing from school districts in central New York. Um, some of what I've seen is that there's a concern that the use of these vaping devices has grown 900% from 2011 to 2015. That's just unfathomable, really. Are you seeing that? Are kids using them that much more? Um, locally, it's becoming more known, and I think it's because of the deceptive nature of the product that uh, by... Um, having it appear to be a flash drive or an inhalation device, uh, uh, it's just lending to, oh, I can get away with this. And uh, Michelle is certainly well-versed on teenage behavior. Well, you know, that risky, that, that, that risky behavior is right there. I mean, they're, they're going to take a chance with it. If you're inclined to, to smoke and you, you can't on campus, boy, this is a way to to, to bring it in and, and you know, kind of have that thrill of, of maybe um, not letting the teacher know what's going on or even your, your, your friends know. So there, that whole piece is there. But in, in addition to that, we find and we hear many, many times from school districts that a lot of these kinds of behaviors are taking place. So whether it's the e-cigs or whether they're inhaling products or whether they're using any of the synthetic agents. You know, if you can do it in school, or if you're drinking alcohol, if you can do it in school and you can conceal it and get away with it, that just adds to the whole allure and fun and the adrenaline rush that you get with it. But Lee has been getting an increased number of requests from the schools to come in and do programs. And we don't often hear from schools asking for programs. So to me, that's a strong indication that Sorry. there's a problem and that there's an issue. 
Well, the, and I'm assuming there's peer pressure tied up in this too, like there is for all sorts of. Yeah, it, it can follow um, any of the teenage behaviors that uh, people, I, one of our most basic nature desires is to belong. And so especially in the teenage uh, period as to whether you want to belong to a particular group and you want to seem adventuresome. And so it, it's very easy to fall into it and then to think that it's benign. And um, I tend to think that most people, staff and students in schools, are grappling with the problem and trying to get an understanding so that they can come up with their own policies as to how they'll handle it. Good. You're a great resource for that. Well, thank you so much for the information. My guests have been Administrative Director Michelle Kaliva and Public Education Coordinator Lee Livermore from the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, the best advice on hemorrhoids on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Hemorrhoids are a common problem that will affect nearly three out of four adults, sometimes without symptoms, but sometimes with itching, discomfort, and bleeding. Here to talk about how to deal with hemorrhoids is Dr. Jeffrey Albright, a colon and rectal surgeon at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Albright. Thank you for having me. Let's start by explaining what uh, hemorrhoids are. Well, uh, hemorrhoids are really just a normal part of our anatomy. Um, this is what I typically describe to patients as they're collections of blood vessels that basically swell up and give us a, a better seal down there at our bottom. Um, there's two types. There's internal hemorrhoids and external hemorrhoids. And the external ones are the ones that if people feel like they've got skin tags on the outside that they can feel those. Often they get bigger you know, with pregnancy or just over the course of time. They tend to cause the symptoms of itching, burning, difficulty cleaning. Internal hemorrhoids are covered by a thinner lining. They can essentially cause uh, bleeding, which is a fairly common symptom that people can experience with it, usually fresh bleeding. Um, and otherwise, if they get big enough, they can actually come out from the inside and, and uh, cause discomfort in that way as well. So is there any difference between internal and external other than their location? Uh, Primarily, the biggest difference is uh, what covers the surface of them, or what covers them on their surface. So skin for the outside ones versus the thinner lining for the inside ones. And because of that difference, it, it alters the type of symptoms that people experience with them. So you touched on, um, it, do we know what causes these? Probably over the course of time, what happens, it, uh, most commonly what I see with people is that they... Um, for women, they, a lot of times they'll get bigger with pregnancy, and so they'll cause symptoms following that. Just in general, for people who, um, it's not uncommon for people to experience a little bit of bleeding on occasion, um, and so they may have uh, transient or temporary bleeding, something that happens for a few days and goes away. Other people who, you know, tend to spend too long on the on the commode um, can basically have them get enlarged and, and lead to symptoms in that way. So, are they necessarily inevitable? Or are there things um, that we need to be doing to prevent them? 
So the the biggest issues that I uh, deal with for people are people that end up, end up with significant constipation who spend a lot of time straining on the toilet. Um, and those are the ones that tend to both develop the enlarged external hemorrhoids as well as the, the bleeding from the internal hemorrhoids. And so generally what I recommend for people is to try to limit their time on the commode. Um, Generally, with the with an American diet, we don't get enough fiber. We just eat too much processed food, and so if we get more fiber in our diet, our stools will be softer and easier to pass, and we don't have to spend as much time sitting on the commode. So those are the, the primary things that we recommend for people to deal with. So, so you mentioned um, the bleeding that might happen um, sporadically or whatever. Correct. Um, is that always sort of an indication of hemorrhoids, or is there uh, any reason to think it could be something else? Well, this is something that actually commonly happens with uh, uh, patients that get referred to me. Just because everybody, you know, when they experience some type of symptom down there, essentially will attribute it to hemorrhoids. There are a lot of other conditions that, that I see um, that can cause people problems as far as pain. Um, we can see people with uh, infections. We can see people with uh, tears in the skin and the anal canal that can cause severe pain. Um, there can be tumors down there as well. Um, other things that we can see that can cause bleeding, um, one we always worry about to, that we have to rule out when we see people over a certain age would be concern about either precancerous lesions in the colon or even cancers in the colon. And sometimes based on the, the symptoms of the person and their age, we may, may actually even recommend that they get evaluated with a colonoscopy in order to make sure that it's not something more nefarious, more dangerous before we attribute to something benign like the hemorrhoids. Um, so hemorrhoids are benign. Do they? Is there any connection between hemorrhoids and colon cancer? No, or there's no, not. No. Okay, so totally unrelated. Correct. Um, are hemorrhoids a problem if um, they're not causing you problems? So, short answer on that is no. Um, I mean, I'll have people that get referred to me um, by their doctors who may have really big hemorrhoids, either on the inside or the outside. And really, my job is to treat people based on their symptoms. If their symptoms indicate that it's a problem to them, then it's something that I address. But somebody can have very large hemorrhoids, either on the inside or the outside, that if they're not really bothering them, then it's hard to beat being asymptomatic. So for those people, even if, it, even if they're unsightly to a physician, they're, if they're not bothering the person, they don't bother me at all. Okay. Do, um, is there a time, I mean, how would a person know if they need to seek medical care? Is it just if they're uh, dealing with a lot of bleeding or if, if uncomfort, uncomfortable? Uh, yeah, certainly. All, all those things, really. If, I mean, if somebody has persistent bleeding, um, it, in that type of a situation, we may say, yes, it may be your hemorrhoids, but for people that have that type of a problem, it kind of passes beyond that point of just being able to um, you know, benignly, benignly neglect something and, you know, say, okay, this has been going on for a while. Maybe we do need to get something evaluated. And, you know, once, once we do evaluate somebody, it doesn't necessarily mean that treatment has to be done. There is, to a large degree, a sense of comfort for some people in just knowing what's going on, ruling out that there's nothing else that could be causing the issues. And then we have a frank discussion of what can you expect if you were to have something done for it as far as the, the treatment course, the discomfort and whatnot, versus if we just left it alone. And then um, people can make a decision at that point if we truly think it's something benign that, uh, um, that we wouldn't necessarily have to do anything if they really don't want to. Um, do you ever see hemorrhoid emergencies? Um, urgent issues, emergency, uh, 
is kind of a loose term, but I mean, we see people that have, um, say, they get a uh, they they break open one of those blood vessels and they bleed under the surface of the skin, what we call a thrombosed hemorrhoid. And in that situation, people may experience a hard lump that comes up over the course of a day or so. That's very painful. Doesn't push back up on the inside because it's not because it doesn't want to be up on the inside, um, but it tends to cause people pretty severe pain. Um, and that's something that people um, will relatively urgently bring to the, the attention of their healthcare provider. And, and typically we try to get those people seen and evaluated. Most commonly, that's something that we can treat in the office if, if possible. Um, on occasion, we have to take people to the operating room for it, just depending on the severity, but often okay. it's just an office procedure. Well, I want to ask you about home remedies, but first, let me remind our listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with colon and rectal surgeon, Dr. Jeffrey Albright. So um, for someone who's got hemorrhoids and knows they have hemorrhoids and they've been assessed for them, Mm -hmm. um, and if they have maybe like a flare-up, are there sort of home remedies that you recommend? You've already mentioned the importance of fiber in the diet, um, but aside from that, are there other things? So a lot of it depends on the the degree of symptoms and the type of symptoms that they're experiencing. If it's mostly like external discomfort, um, a lot of people can uh, get reasonable benefit from just doing, you know, topical hydrocortisone cream where there's some creams with some lidocaine or a medication called Premoxine, which is a, um, a kind of a topical anesthetic, kind of a numbing medication that people can put on. They can help out with the external discomfort or the itching or the burning. Um, often it's just kind of simple hygiene types of things that we recommend. Um, uh, you know, keeping the area dry, uh, avoiding um, a lot of excess moisture or drainage on the area. Um, there, uh, for people that have bleeding, it's really ma- mainly trying to keep the stool soft. Um, if, if people need laxatives or something like that to try to get things back under control, that's a, a reasonable thing to do. I mean, those are the, the main simple measures that we recommend for people at home. But it's also one of these situations where if something it goes on for an extended period of time, we often would say, well, if it's been going on for six or eight weeks and it's not getting any better, it may be a good idea just to get it checked by somebody who, um, you know, deals with symptoms in that area just to make sure that there's nothing more concerning. Okay. Now, um, since uh, hemorrhoids are swollen blood vessels, essentially, do, do things like ibuprofen work to sort of reduce that or not so much? Uh, not so much. Not so much. I mean, uh, the... To a certain degree, once they get enlarged, especially with the external ones, it stretches out the skin. It kind of loses its, it loses loses its elasticity and uh, um, can just lead to some skin tags back there. And at that point, um, the ibuprofen or things like that that's not going to really do a whole lot. Um, then it's just a matter of, kind of basically either symptom control or or even surgery if people feel like they're you know, symptomatic enough for them. For the, the biggest thing really is, is trying to avoid the main instigating factors, which would be straining on the toilet, um, sitting there for longer periods of time because the blood vessels tend to engorge, stretch everything out and enlarge over the course of time if people are um, spending too much time doing that. So, Can you talk to me about how to remove hemorrhoids? Is it all done surgically now? So we have a number of different techniques we do for it. Um, and when there's multiple different ways to treat something, it means that none of them are, is perfect and none of them are universal. And so um, if people are primarily dealing, dealing with hemorrhoids on the inside, um, if they're just causing bleeding but not really popping out or just popping out and just going back up on their own, then often we'll do office procedures like uh, putting a rubber band on them to basically 
strangulate a portion of them to keep them up where they're supposed to be. Um, if they are bigger and they come out more frequently and harder to, re to reduce back up onto the inside, then there are surgeries that we do that can we can put stitches up there that'll shrink them down and hold them where they're supposed to be. External ones, we can either limit our removal to just re uh, cutting them out on the outside, or if people, kind of what we, I refer to as the nuclear option, if people have really big hemorrhoids both internally and externally and there's no other good way of dealing with it, then we do the... Uh, bigger operation which it also tends to be the most painful operation for people with this and so if anybody's you know uncles or grandparents talked about this horrible hemorrhoid operation that they had 20 years ago that's probably what they had um, I try to be a lot more selective in the way that I treat people to just make sure I'm doing the doing the right operation not over treating them and causing them too much pain um, for something that may get by with a, a lesser operation so, so um, if you do like a rubber band, rubber band thing or, or the injection, um, if that doesn't work, you have other, you can try something else right, too, right? Right. We can always scale up based on the, the degree of symptoms and, and what's been successful or not. Yes. Um, what, what's the recurrence rate? It depends on the type of treatment. I mean, that uh, the, the biggest operation, that full hemorrhoidectomy, the recurrence rate's actually very low, probably less than 5 or 10%. For simpler things, that, you know, this, start with the simplest things like just dietary modification. Um, you know, that may take care of somebody's symptoms for a period of time. They may go several months and then have uh, some mild recurrence of symptoms, in which case they go back on it. If they have success, then... Um, you know, as long as we've ruled out the bad things, um, then the intermittent uh, occasional problem somebody may experience is not that concerning as long as it gets better on its own with just kind of the mild therapies, things like rubber banding, uh, which is maybe the next step up as far as like uh, treatment for the internal hemorrhoids. It has a little bit higher recurrence rate, probably if I had to estimate it, say, um, depending on the severity of the hemorrhoids, it may have a recurrence rate of 20%. For more severe ones, it may have a re recurrence rate of, you know, 50 to 75%, just depending on, you know, the severity. Um, if a person does nothing, if, if they've got hemorrhoids that are big enough to cause itching and pain and bleeding on occasion, and they do nothing, they don't come to you, um, do the hemorrhoids ever resolve on their own? Do they ever just go away or...? Um, they may become less symptomatic, but because, you know, A, they may be enlarged, B, they may, they, uh, since they're a normal part of our anatomy, they're always going to be there. And so, um, you know, th they don't fully go away. It's just really more a question of, are they still causing significant symptoms for the person at that time? But again, since they're not really, it's not a precancerous problem, it's not a cancer, it's something that if, as long as the person isn't overly distressed by the symptoms, then, um, you know, they can, keep, they can live they with can them as long as they it. want. Exactly. <laughs> well, lastly, I want to ask you, um, if a person is making an appointment to come and see a colon and rectal surgeon, how would you advise them to prepare for that appointment? What sorts of information do they need to come equipped with or what sorts of... Uh, I, I just... Would, we would want them, of course, to know all of their medical history and the medications they're on, their allergies, what types of treatments that they've had before for it, whether or not they've had um, any type of uh, colonoscopy done to evaluate, um, you know, really anything that they've done to try to make things better. Um, and, you know, since we often do worry about people, that, that small potential for them having a, a cancerous or a precancerous cause for things, you know, knowing what their family history is for things like colon cancer, um, to, to help guide us to um, try to recommend the most appropriate type of management. Okay, great.
Well, thank you so much. This has been very informative. Um, this, my guest has been Dr. Jeffrey Albright, a colon and rectal surgeon at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, new additions to the stem cell transplant unit. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate offers autologous stem cell transplants, and that unit has some exciting plans for the year ahead. Here to talk about them in the studio with me, we have Dr. Jeffrey Poo, and we have a nurse from the program, um, Megan Lewis. Uh, Dr. Poo is the director of the Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant and Hematological Malignancies programs at Upstate. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Let's start by explaining autologous stem cell um, transplant, what that is and what we're offering now and we've offered for years. Um, Dr. Poo? Um, yes, uh, uh, Upstate has been offering auto stem cell transplant for several years. So auto stem cell, is that the, the person's stem cells? Oh, yes. It's a patient, usually for patient with lymphoma or multiple myeloma. They receive high-dose chemo treatment and uh, they get into remission stage. Then you harvest stem cells, and then you f- then later we further transplant back after high-dose chemo treatment. Okay, then so we- these are patients with blood cancers mm-hmm. that have chemotherapy mm-hmm. and then have their own stem cells harvested yes. and put back. Put it back. So, um, Megan, what is that like for patients? Are they... Um, are they in the hospital when this is? They're in the hospital. It's usually a two to three week stay. Um, From the time um, they come in for the chemo, do they go straight into? They usually come in, depending on disease, they either come in six days before transplant or two days before transplant to receive the chemotherapy. And then they are given their stem cells back on what's called day zero. Mm-hmm. And we expect a two to three week stay after that while their cells recover. So during that two to three week stay, are they um, are they in the hospital because they're immunocompromised? Or they are. Their their white count goes down to basically zero, so they are at high risk for infection. Um, and we give supportive therapy for the two weeks that they're here, which could include um, blood and platelet transfusions and antibiotic therapy. Okay. All right. So they're probably in private rooms or isolated. They are in private keep- rooms. There are strict um, visitor guidelines uh no one under 12 can enter the unit currently so i think prior to coming in they they make arrangements and kind of mentally prepare for this stay yeah that's a long time um and help me with the terminology is this also known as a bone marrow transplant is that the same thing or is there some difference so bone marrow transplant is an older um, terminology that's when you actually harvest the bone marrow from Um, which is a procedure that needs to take place in the operating room. 
stem cell transplants are where you give patients or donors, which will be coming up, um, a medication to increase the circulating stem cells in their blood. And then you retrieve the cells, uh, much like uh, phoresis. So you'll phoresis hook, is, uh, hook them like... up to a machine, spin the blood, and collect the stem cells and give okay. them back all the rest. Okay. From the patient's point of view, it's like a, a blood draw? Or it is. It can a more involved. It is more involved. They're put onto a machine. They have a catheter um, placed for this procedure specifically, and it can take one to two days to get all the cells cells that they need. Wow. Well, Dr. Poo, how successful are autologous stem cell transplants for patients? Um, In uh, Upstate has a very successful service over the years with auto stem cell transplant services. Um, Patient doing very well. Patients do, in general, they this. Um, I know we don't like to use the word cure when we're talking about cancer, but does this get rid of a lot of the cancer for many of the patients that undergo a stem cell transplant? Um, auto stem cell transplant is a one of the um, technology. Uh, we are not aiming to improve the overall uh, remission rate. However, we just uh, to as a technology to um, help a patient severity uh, to recovery uh, for this kind of process. Okay. All right. So um, the stem cell transplant when they when they are when it's completed mm-hmm. and they are ready to leave the hospital, what is that like for them? Are they feeling a hundred percent better? Are they back to? I mean, what's it what's it like, Megan? So uh, upon discharge, they follow up closely. Uh, They have multiple appointments a week at the cancer center with their oncologist to check blood levels and um, make sure that they're engrafting. Um, And then they follow pretty strict precautions for six months to a year regarding um, mowing the lawn, for instance. They're not allowed to mow the lawn for a year because they are still at risk for certain types of fungal infections. And then once they are one year out from transplant, we start the re-immunization process. Um, So given the high-dose chemotherapy that they've gotten, all the immunizations that you receive as a child are gone. So they have to So you're basically like a newborn baby. So they have to, starting at one year, they start to reintroduce um, the immunizations. So when they leave, when this um, therapy is completed, their immune system still has to be brought it's very back weak. up to yeah. Okay, but in terms of the cancer cells, when you're doing the blood tests, um, is the ca- are the is the cancer gone after a stem cell transplant, or is there still some residual? This question is a uh, it's, it's a little bit uh, uh, tricky questions. Um, actually. Um, we requ- usually request patients before transplant, uh, they should not have a circulating um, cancer cells. Because according to previous uh, many research, uh, which show that a patient is in a disease, active disease stage, uh, patient post-transplant uh, result will be much worse than patient is in remission stage. So that's why you do the chemotherapy first yes. to get rid of it. I yes. see. Well, I wasn't trying to trick you. I was just trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the, some of the exciting news that you have coming 
later this year <laughs> is that you'll be able to offer allogeneic transplants. Yes. What's the difference? What is that? The difference between oral stem cell transplant and auto stem cell transplant um, is uh, oral stem cell transplant, you use HLA-matched donor stem cell, healthy donor stem cells. Then you transplant to patient. Uh, auto stem cell transplants use the patient's own um, stem cells. So auto uses your own, auto, and yes. allo uses a donor. Yes. So the difference is uh, all those stem cell transplant, besides you can help a patient um, replenish their uh, stem cell in a bone marrow, and further you can engage immune reactions. And those immune reactions can further kill residue or circulating uh, leukemia cells or uh, lymphoma cells. So by using a healthy donor stem cell, you can engage the body of the, of the recipient, um, their immune reaction, which further helps Yes, get further helps get rid of residue and cancers. This is why um, people say this uh, all those steps of transplant can completely cure leukemia, or uh, relapsed, even auto stem cell failed lymphoma patients. So someone who had an auto stem cell transplant of their own, they might be a candidate for an allo transplant. Yes, if their disease is relapsed. Interesting. Um, because when you first talk about auto versus allo, using your own stem cells versus a donor's, um, my naive reaction is first that it would be safer to use my own cells, but that's not always the case. The, is the healthy donor? Go ahead, Megan. So to be a candidate for auto versus allo depends on the disease. Auto autologous transplants are done for lymphoma and multiple myeloma patients, where the allogeneic transplants are done for leukemia and relapsed lymphoma patients. So in order to come for an autologous transplant, you have to be in quote unquote remission, free of disease to receive the cells. Or if you're not, then you will have relapsed disease almost immediately. Um, and then, so if, if you have successful autologous transplant, um, the uh, maintenance therapy could look something like an oral chemotherapy agent if needed down the road. If you have relapsed a lymphoma after an autologous transplant, that's when you would be looking to go for an allogeneic transplant. So it's not an either or choice. It depends on It depends your on your disease. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, well, Dr. Poo, I know you're also um, in process of uh, certification for some immunotherapy. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, it is because a very exciting moment in this uh, cancer center. Uh, we are in the process of uh, uh, certifying our cancer center to conduct a CAR-T therapy. So CAR-T therapy is a, a novel and a more advanced uh, serial therapies. Um, basically, we take a patient's uh, T cells. I was going to back you up. CAR-T mm -hmm. refers to T cells. Yes. So what is the T cell? The T cell is because the T cells is a, a one kind of a lymphocytes. 
And these T cells, uh, they're fighter, and they recognize uh, um, your tumor cells, and then they start to kill the tumor cells. So they're part of our immune system. Yes. The, the, sort of the warriors of our immune yes. system. Yes. Okay. But in normal situations, uh, so those uh, T cell activations and T cell um, engaging. Um, fighting with uh, tumor cells uh, is not so dramatic. The CAR T cells is uh, use uh, um, technology, and we insert artificially certain specific antigen receptor to the T cells, which allow T cell to specific binding the cancer cells or leukemia cells. They increase the efficiency of a T cell killing. So you take a patient's individual T cells and do something to them to make them more powerful to attract and kill cancer yes. cells. Yes. So do you take them out of the patient's body? Do you take the T cells out of the patient's body to do that? Yes. Uh, and yes, actually, this we call the um, cell phoresis process. Cell phoresis. Yes. Okay. The phoresis process we take off uh, those T cell populations. Then we send them to the laboratory. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so when we then we play around uh, those uh, T cells, and then we after the T cell artificially put a specific receptor for certain antigens, then we infuse back to patients' uh, um, tracing bodies. So those uh, um, T cells circle on it, around the patient's body and then recognize those uh, tumor cells and leukemia cells, and then they kill those cells. Wow. So these enhanced T cells go in and they're able to do more toward yes. recognizing. Now we're talking about blood, blood cancers still. Uh, blood cancer still, but still there, there is a significant, uh, profound potential for future even solid tumor treatment. For other kinds of cancers, yeah. uh, liver cancer, brain, yes. whatever. A lot of potential. Wow, that's interesting. Um, so this is something um, that uh, Upstate will need to become certified in order to be able to offer this yes, sometime in, later this year. In next couple months. Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, how, how will that therapy look to patients? Will it, will it seem like a stem cell transplant? Will they come to the hospital and stay for two or three weeks? Or you how, mean, how you do mean, you envision if they're coming in for the... CAR T therapy, the immunotherapy, how will that patient be treated? Oh, okay. So in this stage, like say, the CAR T treatment still is a novel therapy. A novel therapy. Yes. Okay. So comes with uh, severe complications. So two complications are, one is called a, a cytokine release syndrome, and even they call it a cytokine release crisis. Second thing is called neurotoxicities. Neurotoxicities and a yes, cytokine crisis. So, because to prevent or we to better treat those kind of um, complications, usually uh, we transfuse back patient T cell at the hospital settings, especially at the ICU settings, and usually we ask the patient stay in hospital stay in ICU setting for possibly one week. Then just to be monitored? Just be monitored. And if, just be monitored, if patient develop a severe complication, then we can manage them 
and promptly and also effectively. Because if you take a patient's T cells out, that's their immune system. Or the big part of it, right? So they're, again... Uh, uh, Don't worry about this. Uh, (laughs) In your body, you have a lot of T cells. And when you do... And when you take a certain amount of uh, T cells, uh, we'll we'll have a very, very limited, uh, minimum impact on patients. uh, So you don't take them all? Yes, not take them all. Gotcha. Megan, tell me what this means potentially to patients in, in this central New York area. We're very excited to be expanding our program to offer the allogeneic and CAR T therapy because currently patients are having to travel to Buffalo or Rochester to um, have these therapies provided to them. So being able to offer it here means less time traveling and more time with our families. All right. Well, that's exciting to know. We're going to have to have you back to explain more about this um, in the future. I appreciate you both being here. My guests have been Nurse Megan Lewis and Dr. Jeffrey Poo. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. How best do we help those who are ill, those who suffer? We obviously have good intentions, but we often fear we will say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Two of our poets offer us different but wonderful ways to approach this situation. First up is Elizabeth Brule Farrell, whose latest work appears in Spillway, Pilgrimage, and Stand There Shining. Here is her poem, Fixing It. I have purple on my palms from helping you with the plumbing. You said you needed me to put pressure on the new faucet you were installing. You asked me, weak in my hands and wrists, diseased with fibrosing and carpal tunnel, to press down as hard as I could as though stopping bleeding, saving a life. The pain riveted through my body, yet I continued in order to be of use, in order to fix something together. For a very different view of helping, Donna Emerson gives us a place to lie back. I knew you needed to talk about the bed, You wanted a new one, found out Sears had a sale. They could drive it right into your trailer park, bring it in the side door if someone could move the car out of the way. It didn't matter that you had two weeks to live, that you couldn't walk or turn yourself anymore. No one wanted to entertain this bed at your house. Your wife thought you'd gone loco. Your brother worried about cost. Your minister suggested planning your funeral bed. You thought there was plenty of time for doomsday drivel. You asked if I could move the car. I said, sure, for your bed I'd do it. You were so happy you cried and cried harder while I held your big chapped hand.
has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about safe sleep for babies. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.